I remember years ago now, probably back in the 80s, reading this article in Policy Review by a Jewish rabbi living in Alabama called The Bible Belt, America's Safety Belt. I wonder if anybody here read that article. If you were a preacher in the 80s, you might have. It was this interesting article in which Haberman, this Jewish rabbi in Mobile, says, basically, I'm summarizing, I'm sick and tired of the Eastern media establishment writing threateningly or in threatening tones about American fundamentalist Christians. He said, I live on every side of me with fundamentalist Christians. And he said, I have to tell you, they're great neighbors. They think if they steal something, God sees and God will judge them. He said, it wasn't a kind of Christian fundamentalism that took over in Russia or in Germany before the terrible tyrannies of the 20th century. And then he writes, I should know I fled from Vienna in the 1930s because of the rise of Nazism there. And what I saw was that it was no accident that the Soviet state and Hitler's Third Reich both identified the Bible and its teachers as primary enemies. He said, so far as belief in the Bible being true, a threat to our freedoms, it is America's safety belt. Well, that was 30 years ago. I'm not sure what the rabbi would say now. But as Christians, we're to live lives which show that we know we will have to give an account. Just like you learn to play any sport by keeping your eye on the ball, knowing what you're aiming at, you should know what you're living for. That should be reflected in all you do. In fact, the truth is it will be. Your life every day by what you choose to do and not do points out if the dots are connected to the hope that you're really living for. Thankful to Dr. Dever for that challenge as we look at what it means to live our faith in our neighborhoods and to the nations. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, uh, we would like to collect that and we'll pray for you uh, in the coming week. I would invite you to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. I'm thankful for a friend who posted online this week a reminder to fellow pastors. uh, Today in the gathering of the church, you don't have to be funny, controversial, entertaining, therapeutic, cool or even patriotic. Just open the Bible and proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so with God's help, that's what I hope to do in the next few moments together as we look at Revelation 3, this message from the living resurrected Christ to the church at Sardis. The book of Revelation contains the victorious message of Jesus Christ and the triumph of the kingdom of God. The final book of the Bible establishes really the finished work of our Redeemer as it emphasizes the cross all the way through. In fact, that is the anthem of the song of heaven. It addresses the shortcomings of the church. It anticipates the future judgment and tribulation and gives the glorious picture of the new heavens and the new earths, new earth for the people of God. Sadly, this book of triumph is set aside because of the difficulties in trying to interpret the book of Revelation. And admittedly, I'm glad that my salvation doesn't 
uh, depend upon my ability to rightly interpret the book of Revelation. But I refuse uh, to ignore it. Uh, in fact, we're, we're promised a great blessing in chapter 1. Blessed are those who read the prophecy of this book. And as we draw near, this, as we think about this triumph of the kingdom, uh, this book time and again um, is, is, is a word of hope to us of the future that we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to make a connection uh, with us with that this morning as we look at celebrating Independence Day as a nation. So my thought in going to the book of Revelation is not to try to pull out a chart of end time events or make a prediction of how Christ's returns, return coincides with some political scenario that we may read about in the newspaper. I don't think that's the point of the book. I'm drawn to the book of Revelation because the message of eternal victory is on its pages. And when I read the Bible, that's how I read it, to align my life with the agenda of God, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so as we look at at this book of Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible. It was written in the last decade of the first century. And it was written by the Apostle John, who was the last living disciple. All the others had been martyred. And John, in his old age on the island of Patmos, receives a vision, a revelation from the living, resurrected Christ. So John was on the Isle of Patmos, Patmos, not because he was wanting to enjoy a Mediterranean vacation. He was there because of his witness. He was there because of his stand for the Lord. And so on this rocky volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, he's there. And you can imagine some of the feelings and thoughts he might have had. He's the last living disciple. The first century is closing out. Roman, Roman rule had been horrific and brutal, wondering, is this all there is? Is Christ really victorious? And so he receives this vision on the, Isle of, on the Isle of Patmos from the living Christ. And so the purpose really is to give believers a renewed vision of, of where the Lord is now. He's on the throne. And it is a message calling us to repentance and a renewed commitment to Christ. And it reveals God's future plan for his church. The book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he walks among his lampstand. That's a, a, a phrase that John uses in Revelation 1 and 2, that Jesus Christ is walking among his lampstand, and the lampstand is the church. In chapter 1, it describes his clothing. It describes his clothing as he functions as a priest, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His hair, John describes the hair of Christ in this way. His hair was pure white like wool, like snow, speaking of his purity and his deity. His eyes were like flames of fire. And this description of Christ has always gripped me John says he has eyes like flames of fire. And so when he walks among the lampstand of his church, it describes his penetrating gaze into everything. He sees everything. As Dr. Dever mentioned in that video clip, 
that Christians really believe that if they steal something, God sees it and they're going to have to be accountable for it. He sees everything. He sees into your life right this morning. I'm reminded in the gathering of the church, this is the most strategic and important gathering in any given week, in any given community, when God's people gather together and Christ has promised to be in our midst, walking among the lampstands. What a wonderful assurance that should cause us all to want to be honest with God this morning and to turn to him with a pure heart, his feet. In chapter 1, verse 15, we're like burnished bronze. His voice was like the sound of many waters. If you've ever been to a waterfall and you hear the, the, the thunder that comes as the water goes over a cliff down below, it's, it's deafening. And John is describing his authoritative voice. His mouth, out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength, full deity, his transforming presence. So what did John do in light of this vision, this revelation? He fell at his, at his feet like a dead man. I remember years ago hearing the testimony of a pastor who claimed that Jesus came into his bathroom one morning while he was shaving and talked about a conversation he had with Jesus in his bathroom. And the question just is, it begs itself, and you, and you kept shaving? And you compare that with the vision of John on the island of Patmos, and he falls at his feet as a dead man to which the Lord calls him forth, get up, get the dirt out of your mouth. I have something to share with you. And we're the beneficiaries of that message here this morning. One of the things that, that draws me to the book of Revelation is that it was written to real people in real time with real problems, just like us. The book of Revelation is unique in that it's an apocalypse, it's an unveiling of the future, It's a, it's a letter, and it's a prophecy. No other New Testament book is compiled like that. And so it's to the letters that I want to look. It was written to real people, seven churches, actually, seven churches in Asia Minor. And I want to focus on the fifth one in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, the church at Sardis. Look with me at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you, you're dead. There is a long dispute on who this angel of the church is. Some call it the pastor. There's not a lot of support for that. It seems to be the prevailing spirit of the church. And Christ is speaking into this church, this church at Sardis. It says, I know your works and you have quite a reputation that you're alive, but you're dead. Wow. If you were to peek into the window of the gathering of the church of Sardis, you'd see a lot of movement going on. You'd see lots of activities. But what a, a scathing assessment to have the Lord of the church who has eyes like flames of fire speak to you and say, you think you're alive, but you're really dead. The greatest of all contradictions is to be a dead church. How can you be a dead church? Especially if the living Lord indwells it. How can you... 
be a congregation that is, is dead to God's, uh, to God's life in Christ. Tragically, many churches are dead. Someone has said they're like the rotting carcass of Lazarus. These church bodies have the foul stench of death upon them. They have a, the appearance of life, but they are in actuality dead. How, does, how do you make that assessment? Well, compromise, defection from the truth, being watered down and embracing a world system that is perishing to the neglect of what the Lord of the church has said. The, someone has said this, a, a dead church, their sanctuary is a morgue with a steeple. Their congregations of corpses. I often refer to R.G. Lee, the great preacher of the 20th century, who went on a preaching tour in Australia, and he was just taken by uh, the, the lack of response. He called them glassy-eyed congregations on this preaching tour in the 1950s. Glassy-eyed congregations. He said, when I would preach on the wonder of the cross, I, as I looked at their faces, I, I could have just been talking about a dead dog on the side of the highway. Maybe, maybe that's you. It's been a long time since the word of God has thrilled your soul. It's been a while since you've confessed your love to the Lord. Where you've been on a path of obedience and you've felt the, the fellowship of God with you. Maybe you've attended church, but it's all been dead to you. The worship, your worship is dead. Fellowship is dead, dormant, dull, fruitless. Do not disturb sign over your, over your mind and heart. You've got other things to, you're committed to. How, how can this be? How can a church have a name that you're alive, a reputation that you're alive, but in actuality the Lord says you're dead? I thought of several ways for our consideration. One would be when busyness is mistaken for spiritual service. When busyness is mistaken for spiritual service. We are a doing people. We always want to do something. Once in a while someone will say, don't just stand there, do what? Something. And Jesus goes right to their problem. I know your deeds, that you have a name, but you're, that you're alive, but you're dead. And again, if you were to look at the bulletin or if you were to look at the activities of this church, there'd be movement. But movement doesn't mean life in the Lord. Activities don't mean that what we're doing is pleasing to God. I remember hearing the story of one man who grew up in East Texas. And he would share how his mother would go out in the yard and would get a chicken and wring the neck. This has been some years ago. Wring the neck and prepare the chicken for um, a chicken pot pie. And so he observed that she would go and she would wring the neck of the chicken, which nobody really wants to see. And that chicken would have, oh, it would have movement. It would have more movement than anyone in the barnyard, but it would be the closest to death. Friends, don't mistake your religiosity, your Christianity, your churchianity for a saving relationship with the Lord of the church. Remember, he has eyes like flames of fire that can see into your soul. You can't fake him out. 
We should be glad of that. Do you remember the pathetic picture of Samson in Judges 16? After his hair had been cut and his strength had left him, Delilah wakened him and said, the Philistines are coming, the Philistines are coming. And he went to fight them with great confidence. He had been the champion over the Philistines for years. But sadly, he did not know that his strength had left him. He had always fought the Philistines in the power of the Spirit of God. But now he fought them in his physical strength and was conquered and captured. So it is with the church of Jesus Christ. The arm of flesh will fail us every single time. So one of the marks of a dead church is when busyness replaces true spiritual worship and service. Secondly, when tradition is more loved than Jesus Christ. Traditions are not bad. They can be really helpful. They can be important. They can nurture faithfulness. I think it's sad when churches totally ransack the church's history, or in a country for that matter, seeks to eradicate any historical vestiges of anything in order for a constant craving for something that is new. We must never worship traditions, but they can be important. To be inflexible and resistant to to change can stifle the spirit, so we need to be led by the spirit, filled with the spirit. The church at Sardis had once been faithful, a loving servant of Christ, But no more. In the past, she had been the city's conscience. She had spoken the truth. She had been salt. She had been light. She had been committed to contend earnestly once for all for the faith delivered to God's people. But you get the feeling here, because of traditions, she had become the nice, safe church on the corner. Harmless. Wouldn't hurt a flea. But there needs to be a sense of a fight, not in a physical sense, but certainly in a spiritual sense. When we look at the Christian life in the Bible, it's described as a battle, a race, a war, in which we're to put on the spiritual armor of God. There's another mark of a dead church, and that's when a desire to reach the lost is lost. A desire to reach the lost is lost. To lose sight of the church's mission Namely, which is to take the good news far and wide and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When that is lost, it's just a matter of time before the the church loses God's power. It could be declared dead. To grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord is our life pursuit to have genuine love for others that they may hear the good news to have a burning desire for your neighbors to pray for them to look for opportunities to share the word with them even even this morning that we upon hearing this lord i don't want i don't want the assessment given to the church at sardis to be true of me i want to make you known I'm going to make you known this this week, Lord, with my words, with my actions. I'm going to engage people in my life that I may have come in contact with or spent time with through the years, and I've never witnessed to them. I need to recover 
the urgency of sharing the gospel with those who are without Christ. And then finally, I guess a fourth sign of a dead church is when the pursuit of holiness is set aside. Why would I think that? Well, because it says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. And then he says in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Repent. Holiness is God's call for his people. We are called a holy people, not because we're self-righteous, but because we're set apart for God's purposes. And that God has called every believer to be an imitator of God as a a dear child. And we're to pursue holiness. It's God's call for us. It's it's a sign of a, a growing Christian life. When the pursuit of holiness is set aside and we begin to embrace the ways of the world, the ideas of the world, we become a contradiction. Nothing could be more clear from an honest reading of the Bible that holiness is a major part of God's plan for his people. Do you ever think about holiness in your life? Being set apart for God's purposes? Putting off sin? J.I. Packer once said that holiness is the goal of our redemption. It's part of the sanctification process that doesn't stop in this life. That God's purpose for you and for me is to conform us into the image of his son. And often we push back on holiness. It's not really attractive, but we need to do battle with that thought because at the heart of what it means to be a Christian is that I'm presenting myself to God daily as a living sacrifice. Some seem so discouraged by the prospect and that's understandable. We know that Jesus died for our sins and so we think that's sufficient and it is with regard to forgiveness and and our salvation But part of understanding that salvation is walking with him and living for him every day. Kira Knightley once said, if only I wasn't an atheist, I could get away with anything. You just ask for forgiveness and then you'd be forgiven. That's a gross misunderstanding of the grace of God. God has called us to follow in obedience, to put things off, And to put things on. To put off our sin. And to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot think of a more practical way. Of pursuing holiness in our life. Than when we're dealing with a sin. Pick it in your life. And you're saying. I see where this is at odds with God's word. And the debate is over about what I should do with it. I'm not going to nurse it and keep it warm. I'm going to put it off as God has commanded. And I'm going to put on what he's commanded. So if I'm dealing with a lack of love, I'm going to put on love. I'm going to put it off. Done with my snarky comments. Done with my my sarcasm. Done with my harsh comments. I'm going to put those off. And I'm going to put on love and learn to speak to people differently. Especially those that are closest to me. When I'm dealing with bitterness and forgiveness issues, which we all have to deal with, right? 
I'm not going to nurse that. I'm not going to keep that warm. I'm going to put that off because I'm going to remember that God has called me to put on love and forgiveness, to be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. And on and on and on it goes. Selfishness, pride, stubbornness, rebellion, impatience, ingratitude, discontentment, jealousy, strife, retaliation, anger, losing temper, gluttony. That's how, we, that's how we pursue holiness. And when a church has no desire to follow obedience in that way, that's a problem. That's a serious problem. It's almost as if you read into the picture here that the church at Sardis had really just begun to embrace uh, the, the standards of the culture around them. It's not a lost cause. It's God's call for us to pursue holiness. Notice with me, secondly, the message of Christ to his church then and now. I mentioned that the book of Revelation is written to real people in real time, seven churches. Five of them had major problems that Jesus called them to repent. Two of them he commended for suffering for righteousness sake. The church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia did not receive a a, a word of correction, but Ephesus did. He said to the church at Ephesus, you've left your first love. To Pergamum, you've compromised the teaching by having fellowship with the world. Thyatira, you need to do battle with worldliness and reject the Jezebelian spirit that has come into the church. Sardis, of course, which we were looking at, their self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-deceived. And then Laodicea, he says, you're so lukewarm, you make me vomit. So in this message to the churches it is a wake-up call he says to them and us wake up and strengthen the things that remain that are about to die what a call for us on this anniversary of our nation's birth to be reminded why we've been placed here to live the christian life maybe you've had the thought if i could just hear Jesus speak to me. I think it would be so much clearer. (laughs) He has, through the authority of his word. If you want to know what the Lord has to say to the church, look into his word. And that's how I'd like to proceed for the next few few moments. What does Jesus have to say to his church? What does he have to say? How do we hear the voice of Jesus today? And here in this section of scripture in Revelation 3, I would want to note three things. You ready? Don't be ashamed of my exclusive claims. What we need to understand living for Christ in a pluralistic culture is that our Savior has made exclusive claims that doesn't make us arrogant if we insist upon them. It makes us faithful. What do I mean by exclusive claims? Oh, the gospel's for everybody. Let's be clear on that. Red and yellow, black and white. We fast forward to the end of time in Revelation 7, and we see around the throne of heaven the redeemed from every tongue and tribe and kindred and land. 
The gospel is for everyone. We're committed for it to be sown far and wide. And with increasing faithfulness is our prayer. But that's much different than how our world, our culture sees exclusivity, doesn't it? Isn't it? By exclusive, I mean when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You will suffer if you stand for that. You, you will get pushback if you stand for that. When the apostles said in Acts 4, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By exclusive, exclusive claims, that's what I mean. And we need to be prepared in our generation to stand and to quote Jesus Christ and to do so in love and with confidence. But what if they don't receive it? In many sectors, that's likely. But isn't that promise from the, all throughout Scripture? Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room, there will come a time where they will kick you out of the synagogues and kill you and think they're doing God a favor. The Apostle Paul gives what I call the unpopular promise, yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We have not experienced that by and large. But it should not surprise us. Oh, may the Lord give us a holy boldness to never be ashamed of his exclusive claims. The Apostle Paul began the book of Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Jesus said in Matthew 10, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Jesus said that. You acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. That's strong. Because we all know what it's like to be Peter who warms who warms our hands by the fire of this world, don't we? We don't want to be ashamed of his exclusive claims. In much of Christianity today, there's a fear and trepidation of what the world thinks. Phrases like, well, the world is watching, the world is watching. We really need to be concerned with the fact that God is watching. Every move we make, He is watching. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, We Will Not Be Silenced, said progressives believe that the evangelical church is toxic, filled with racial injustice, sexism, Islamophobia, and shaming judgmentalism. Their goal is to purge the church from these noxious attitudes and ideas and cultivate a more compassionate, inclusive, and culturally relevant form of Christianity. Thus, they surrender ground to culture under the banner of progress. That's not progress. That's retreat. No one appreciates someone who has no cultural understandings, who blurts out things. They could either take it or leave it. Nobody appreciates that kind of witness. 
And we're certainly not talking about that. But it is time that we think through how we stand and what we say and what we're committed to and who we support and why. We are not ashamed, regardless of the insults and the ridicules, regardless of being told that we're on the wrong side of history, to learn from Jesus, to learn from Paul, to learn from others. Do you have heroes of the faith? Men or women in your life who model for you that kind of courage? I sure do. I'm so thankful for, through the years, pastors who have imparted things into my heart, into my life. I long to be a faithful Christian, don't you? So often I'm reminded of the fact I'm an ordinary pastor wanting to be faithful to the little flock that God has given here. That means more to me than anything else in the world. How do we finish this race together in faith and for the glory of the Lord? So we're we're not going to be ashamed of the exclusive claims of Christ. We're going to stand on the scripture no matter what. Secondly, Don't bow to this world's agenda. Recognize that there is a world system that is opposed to God's rule and order. That has been true since the garden. And the system will ultimately be defeated and brought to judgment. We need to remember the words of the Apostle John and 1 John when he said, Love not the world, neither the things in the world, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is passing away, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. We need to remember it's a myth to think that there's neutral ground. There's no neutral ground in this world. Again, Erwin Lutzer expresses that we all struggle with and trying to live out the Christian life. How much of the culture should we embrace in order to redeem it? Some aspects of culture we can embrace, but much we must oppose. Our witness is dependent on our ability to discern what we can and cannot embrace. My concern is that we are submitting to culture's most enticing temptations and justifying this in the name of compassion, love, and cultural relevance. We are willingly being deceived, and too often we are feeling self-righteously good about it. And we've seen some shocking developments in the last year and a half. Movements to abolish the police. When there's misconduct among law enforcement, they need to be held accountable and prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But to abolish law and order? What, for anarchy? That's crazy. The race card being played to our ever-loving shame. Yes, we need to own our past. Yes, we need to accept changes that have been made and others that need to be made in order to be aligned with Scripture and what is true and right and move forward with a sense of purpose. We've seen a, a sexual revolution that we could track really in our own history going back into the 60s and now here in 2021 Just add a plus sign to the end of it because there's no end to the insanity in sight. It's unsustainable in every aspect of life. Talk about unpopular. 
We've said many times from this pulpit, there will come a time when such declarations will be called hate speech and nothing could be further from the truth in saying it. But are you, are you being sucked in and lured in to these offerings from the world? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Repent and return to what we know is true. And that is God's word. Noted historian Will Durant said, no great nation has ever been overcome until it has destroyed itself. We're watching that in living color. May we speak the truth in our generation. Maybe you're not familiar with the, the sins of Sodom. I thought this was insightful when we look at doing examination of ourselves, but they're mentioned in Ezekiel 16. And I'll just mention them quickly, pride and arrogance. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, the prophet speaks of this, the sins of Sodom. And he does so as an indictment to the people of God that Ezekiel was preaching to. And he mentions them, five of them, pride and arrogance is the first one. When a people begin to think that we're the only generation who's ever lived standing in judgment of past generations as if we're the moral authority on everything. That's pride and arrogance. When we invent our own righteousness code to the neglect of God's word and the gospel, that's pride and arrogance. When we insist on redemption on our own terms and reject Christ as humanity's only savior, that's pride and arrogance. Rod Dreyer in his book, The Benedict Option, said, a civilization in which no one, no one felt an obligation to the past, to the future, or to each other, or to anything higher than self-gratification is one that is dangerously fragile. That's right where we are. Right where we are. Second sin of Sodom, gluttony, unbridled lust, abuse of food, idolatry of food, Let's be clear that God has given us everything to enjoy. Gluttony is the worship of these things and to live our lives in the pursuit of them. Sodom had no thought for God or anything spiritual. Thirdly, careless ease. Sodom was a resort location. You remember when Abram and Lot, their servants grew too great and Abram being a magnanimous man said, Lot, we got too many here. You pick what land you want. And so he looked to the arid land of Palestine, looked at it, and then he looked at the well-watered valley of Jordan and said to Abram, I'll go over here. <laughs> but it cost him everything, didn't it? Sodom was there. Gomorrah was there. Careless ease was there. And the text says prosperous ease in Leviticus 16. Fourth sin, negligent to the poor. No regard for the poor. No regard for others. A neglect of Deuteronomy 15.7. If, if among you one of your brothers sh should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord has given you, you shall not harden your heart to them. A lack of brotherly love. And then finally, abominations and perversions. 
Lot had set up camp in Sodom, sat in the gates of Sodom. And it says in Genesis 19 that God sent two angels into Sodom. And when they came to Lot's house in the evening, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house in order to violate them. Abominations and perversions, the sins of Sodom, are the sins of America. May they not be the sins of this church. Greg Morris writes with precision, he said, as I walked into the coffee shop, I thought I had wandered into a painting. Vibrant blues and greens and yellows and oranges were displayed all over the store, tie-dye shirts on every employee, banners strewn overhead. Why the celebration? Before I had time to ask, I saw the back of one of the rainbow-colored shirts, Pride, it said, it read. The rainbow, the sign of God's covenant to Noah, promising never again to drown the world of sinful men with a flood, the drawn bow pointing up to the heavens now used as a mascot for sexual deviance. Though our nation champions Sodom's sins, we have not learned from Sodom's punishment. We receive advertisements for sins that bar millions from the kingdom of God. And as we order our morning coffee, this is offered. Of course, homosexual sin is just one of the many abominations to which our nation lends colorful support. Heterosexual sins of fornication and adultery and pornography saturate our television shows, movies, and magazines lining our checkout lines. Half-naked women whisper from billboards driving to work. Shower scenes come unbidden in commercials and pop-up ads. The indoctrination of transgenderism confuses and abuses many children and is now sent out mainstream through the public education system all the way through the universities. And so why do I bring up these things that are not fun to talk about because each one of us has a decision to make of who we're going to live for and are we just going to be sucked along with the flow of this world or are we going to be men and women of conviction who are tethered to the word of God and our allegiance to Jesus Christ it's sober living the Christian life is a serious thing to consider every day Let me close with this. Don't forget what's most important. Back to Revelation 3. Don't forget what is most important. And he describes that in verse 3. Remember that. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night and you're in trouble. So remember. Remember what you've received Remember what you've heard. To believe that Christ is the only way is often viewed as bigotry. 
and belief in hell is viewed as a throwback to some uneducated period of human history where only fools believe such a thing. Erwin Lutzer, one more time for this morning. God is seen as so tolerant that he extends grace even to people who don't think that they've sinned enough to need it. Jonathan Edwards' classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of of an Angry God, might today be reworded as God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. So, Jesus said to the church at Sardis, and he says to us this morning, repent, turn, turn from the sin and neglect of God's word in your life, and set your focus afresh and anew on the Lord Jesus Christ. Devour his word, love his commandments, and walk in his grace. Walk in his grace. And may we do so with resolve and hope. In the closing moments of this service, we call it um, responding in faith because at least two things are happening. One is that this message has come to you, believer. And I would trust that it comes with a sense of power into your life, that the authority of the message uh, is not through the preacher, but through the one who has given it in his word, and that's Christ's claim to you, Christ's claim on, his, on your life. If you're a believer and follower of him, is he placed his hand upon you? Is he showing you things that you need to repent of, to remember, to return to? How does he want you to live in your neighborhood? How does he want you to live in your job site? How does he want you to live among your family? All of this is an ongoing uh, responsibility for us to, to seek him and to live for him. But I'm also aware that gathered here today are those who are unbelievers. And you may know that. You know that you're not a believer. And I would pray that you would remember when we gather here that there's one who's walking among this gathering who has eyes like flames of fire, who knows every detail of your life, and the gospel is extended to you this morning. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. Come to me. And you need to. Not because I said so. Because in him is life. He's the way. He's what you need most. You need a savior. And you're not it. And that's why he died. And that's why he rose from the dead. And that's the message we've been given to proclaim until he comes. And to know him means your citizenship is in heaven where we await a savior. He's coming. What an an age of grace. What a day of grace that it would be extended to us this morning for you, for me. Father, in these closing moments, I pray that our hearts would be completely given to you, that your spirit would move right now and that we would be reminded of the great promise that when, if we know you, it is well. It is well with our soul. As we look at the perplexing challenges of living for Christ in this generation, I pray you would give us courage and strength 
to bear your reproach, to stand for you. Not to be pitied by men, but Lord, that we might just be given to you who is worthy of our very best. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come.